If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content and potentially join our Green Dreamer network as well, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. I think we need to think about these technologies as not dropping from the sky, as being part of our natural evolution, and that if we can just find out ways that we can make sure we decide how to use them in a way that's just and wise, then then I think there is a way to really be in balance with nature as, as we make these choices. That was Natalie Kofler, a trained molecular biologist and the founding director of Yale University's Editing Nature, which is a global initiative that's working to steer responsible development and deployment of environmental genetic technologies. Stay tuned as we're about to explore what role gene editing can play in environmental conservation and building resilience against climate change, what the ethics and moralities are of changing the DNA of non-human species, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Yeah, I think I've had a really deep relationship with nature for most of my life. I grew up spending a lot of summers up in northern Ontario at a family um, cottage on a lake where I got to really explore the woods and explore the lake a lot as a child. My grandfather was a huge lover of nature and curious mind like my own. And so I also learned a lot from him. And so I think I feel a strong kinship with non-human nature and a real need to help be in relationship with it and think about ways that we can include a responsibility towards nature and how we make choices in, in the world. And I, I think in a way that that curiosity and the love of the natural world is really probably what led me into first being in biology and eventually molecular biology, just because I had this real desire to really understand how the world works and it ended up being more at a at a microscopic level. But it really was sort of this idea of sort of exploring new spaces and, and understanding how living things flourish and function. Um, mm. And I think that was really the driving force. 
So today you're the founder and director of Editing Nature, which is a Yale University initiative that works to explore the potential environmental applications of gene editing technologies to promote public engagement around their use and to strengthen the regulatory process to ensure these technologies are used responsibly. Can you first give us an introduction to what exactly gene editing is and I guess what are the, some of the misconceptions around it among the general public? Yeah, so gene editing is a is a form of genetic engineering. It really came onto the stage in, in sort of the 2013 when I was still a molecular biologist in the biomedical space. So as a researcher in cardiology, gene editing was really coming on as a tool to be able to make really specific uh, genetic changes to any form of DNA in a way that's not only very targeted, but quite easy to do and quite inexpensive. And those are sort of the reasons why it's, it's really exploded on the, on the field in just that it allows for all these new ways of changing genetic sequences that would have been cost prohibitive and even functionally in inhibitive with previous forms of genetic engineering. So previous forms of genetic modifications tended to make huge changes to genetic sequences. It was um, in a way that would kind of be messy. You'd be able you'd be inserting large swaths of DNA and at the same time kind of being changing things you might not, not want to. And, and this literally really lets us change genetic sequences at the single code level. And so that's, that's a big deal. Mm. <laughs> and because of that, it's allowed for genetic engineering to enter into entirely new um, spaces and solution making because not only it's so easy to use, but also it's quite inexpensive now. And so now we're seeing it being applied to things like environmental conservation or public health. And so that's where Editing Nature arose from in, in our organization, in that we saw proposals being made to use CRISPR gene editing in combination at times with another genetic tool called a gene drive, which allows you to not only make any gene edit you want in a species, but also push that gene edit through an entire wild population. And so people are now thinking about using it to give for example, resistance to coral um, that might be under stress from raising sea temperatures and ocean acidification, or thinking about using it to suppress mosquito populations that might be responsible for transmitting malaria. And so it's really entering into an entirely new space. And because of it, it is um, really pushing our, our limits on sort of how we regulate these things and how we think about the ethics about making these choices. Mm. Well, humans have been interfering with nature ever since our evolution as a species. We've been transforming landscapes, introducing invasive species to different places that we go to, you know, changing the ratio of different species within any ecosystem based on uh, what we feel are most valuable or useful to us. But there seems to be a deeper sense of unease around the idea of editing genes. Do you feel like there were specific events that occurred that led to this? Or what do you feel like are the roots of this sense of discomfort around it? Well, I mean, just to step back a second, that the evolution of this idea to edit genes is is there. I mean, we've, as humans, have been selectively breeding crops and animals to acquire certain traits. More recently, there's obviously been genetic modification of, of certain crops to, to gain new kinds of traits that might not have existed in nature. Gene editing is sort of this next level in that, for several reasons. One, as I mentioned, in combinations with these things like gene drives, it's now looking at genetically engineering wild species, right? So whether that's the malarial-bearing mosquito 
or that is a, again, a struggling coral species. So that's a, that's kind of a new level, I think, of, of interference as what we've been doing from a genetic standpoint up until now. I, I think, though, the other thing that makes it different is that there's such a selection quality to this. So we're, when scientists are thinking about using gene editing in, in a species, it's so targeted. And I think because of that, in a way, it also brings up a larger sense of responsibility because you're, you're changing something at such a fine level that you have to really think about the complexity of what that change might look like and, and how that can impact the genome of a species, how it impacts the species in its, in its ecology, how it impacts humans' values and ethics. And so it, it really, it seems to be a much heavier, heavier discussion. I also think, and this is something I've been thinking about recently, it's still really new ideas, but I think there's something also about specifically changing DNA of non-human species that feels for many as an overstep and almost like it's interfering with the sacred or a place that humans shouldn't go. And so I think of course, the idea of playing God gets brought up a lot in these sorts of discussions and, and often dismissed by scientists in many ways. But I, I think there's something really valuable there about, about of what we need to really unpack about what that means and how humans should be sort of relating to non-human species when we think about gene editing. Of course, being said, there's also a lot of discussion of gene editing of humans as well. So we, that's a totally different conversation, but not mm. something that we should forget about as well. Yeah. So, I mean, as you've been pondering this, these thoughts, how do you personally feel about the ethics and morality of our ability to change our codes of life, especially for other non-human species? Yeah, I, um, I really think and I hope that, that my work is a reflection of, of really how I feel personally. And, and really, it's, it's completely undecided and not so much um, in, in a bad way, I think. I really strive and have to fight to sort of stay in the in the gray zone here because these are really complex decisions. They hold quite high levels of of uncertainty of whether or not we should be genetically engineering, you know, the wild. And I can see in really the same breath, this could provide an entirely new solution for a long-standing issue. Nearly 500,000 people die of malaria every year. Ecosystems are under incredible strain from invasive species, for example. Um, genetic engineering of a vector of disease or a non-native species could, could provide an entirely new way of dealing with those, those issues, sometimes in a way that could be healthier for nature and that you wouldn't need huge amounts of insecticide, for example, or rodenticide if we're talking about an invasive rat on some threatened ecosystem island. But at the same time, I have a really healthy dose of fear and concern when it comes to these technologies. And I think we all need to because these are really, as I said, very complex decisions. There are high degrees of uncertainty at the genetic level, at the ecological level, at the human health level that we just don't know enough about right now. And we likely would have to make these choices in those spaces of uncertainty. And so I really try and, and again, straddle that that boundary between the potential great benefits of these technologies and also the the inherent risk. And I think it's important to sort of protect that gray zone so we can come into the middle and really discuss this in the way that it needs to be. Mm. I feel like part of what creates this discomfort around the idea of editing genes is also because it feels unnatural, like it, like we're mm -hmm. intervening. But at the same time, mm -hmm. this then also puts into question, you know, what does natural really mean? 
because all species mm-hmm. have some sort of impact in, you know, shifting their surrounding environments. And we, we as humans, we're also a part of nature. So what are your thoughts on what it means to be natural? And how has your view evolved over time as you've learned more about perhaps the gene mutations that naturally occur even without human intervention, and then also just crossbreeding naturally occurring in the wild? I mean, I, I want to step just like highlight one thing you did say there, though. And I think what's critical to thinking about these technologies is I think it's absolutely important that we remember as humans, we are part of this larger natural world. And if we see ourselves as separate, I, I actually don't see how we can make responsible decisions. Of course, being in relationship with non-human nature also means that we have to talk about what the quality of that relationship looks like. So I really, I really aspire to thinking more about being in kinship and being in in a place where we honor and and value nature for its own intrinsic value. So if we go in kind of as trying to dominate nature, I I doubt we could make uh, good decisions. I, and so let me step back. So because of that, and as I see humans as part of nature, and I see technologies as something that we in our human ingenuity and creativity have, have created, I don't necessarily see these technologies as being unnatural in that I think that they can, if used with wisdom and foresight and with a diverse group of voices steering how they're used, we can come up with really beautiful solutions and ways to be with nature. And in some ways, actually restore damage that we've created. You know, So thinking about the removal of an invasive species that was brought over by sort of human negligence, you know, if there's a way that we can use these tools to be able to sort of restore an ecosystem in a quite humane way, you know, maybe there's also a responsibility to do that as well. So I think, again, that just to reiterate, I think we need to think about these technologies as not dropping from the sky as being part of our natural evolution. And that if we can just find out ways that we can make sure we decide how to use them in a way that's just and wise, then then I think there is a way to really be in balance with nature as, as we make these choices. Mm. You mentioned earlier how gene editing technologies is potentially helping us to suppress populations of mosquito species that carry malaria or prevent their ability to transmit malaria, and also how this could help certain species like corals become more resilient to to climate change and additional environmental stressors. Can you expand more on the work that's currently being done and where are we currently at in terms of uh, rolling this out into into actual reality out in the wild and give us a picture of where we're currently at. So the use of gene editing in in mosquitoes to counter malarial transmission is by far the most mature projects underway right now. They're largely backed by an organization called Target Malaria, which is, again, largely funded by the Gates Foundation with a goal to eradicate malaria. And basically, they have in laboratories now um, designed a mosquito that uses CRISPR-based gene editing in combination with a gene drive to to push sterility through wild mosquito populations. And so what that would mean is that you could release a certain number of these mosquitoes into the wild. They would mate with wild mosquitoes and then through that process, basically um, sterile offspring would be born and pushed through a population. So you could basically collapse a population. Those mosquitoes are already in the lab now, and they're showing that they can basically collapse a lab population of mosquitoes in as little as 11 generations, which is not very long because mosquitoes only have a lifespan of about five weeks. 
And so really it's more of a question now of understanding how those mosquitoes might work in the wild, because obviously that's going to be a different kind of population, as well as doing field trials and thinking about how to work through the regulatory process and consent process in order to release. So in that situation, the technology is pretty much ready. It's a question of, of when it would be released. So people need to be aware of that and be engaged in those conversations. I think it's important so that there's kind of more voices at the table. The coral, the ideas of restoration of coral is a lot more nascent just because, for example, we know very little about many of these coral species and their genomes. And so there's a lot of work being done even just to understand sort of what genes would be edited and how in order to give resiliency. There's also a lot of work being done of even being able to breed coral in captivity because that can be quite challenging. And then, of course, there's going to be many other hurdles like regulation hurdles and field trial once once the sort of coral technology is even up and running. And so that's a much more nascent project, um, really more theoretical at this point, and just trying to kind of do proof of concept experiments to figure out if it's even possible that being said, for example, there's been a genetically engineered American chestnut tree that's been made um, in using a genetic engineering technique that predates CRISPR. And those are able to withstand an invasive fungus blight that is in America that basically like, inhibited all American chestnuts from growing in, in North America. And so those are ready to go and they're starting, they've already done field trials and they're in the regulatory process of wanting to hopefully plant those trees, which would then again be resistant to this blight and allow them to reproduce um, and spread in, in the wild. When we intervene and create changes in our environments to achieve certain outcomes, there seems to always be unintended consequences <laughs> that can create a new set of problems that we didn't know could exist. And it sounds like gene editing is very targeted in its application, which being something about one species may change through that. But I guess my question is that in wild ecosystems, individual species don't really evolve in silos. They evolve with the species that they may be interdependent on. So how do we work with that? And what are some of the unforeseen consequences that may come from this? And what would be the best way for us to be prepared in addressing anything that may come up? Yeah, that brings up a really, really good point. If I, I like to use this analogy that if you think about how many billions, maybe, no, sorry, trillions of dollars and an effort has been has gone into just understanding the human body from a disease standpoint and even from healthy path, uh, physiology and still how little we know, this is like a whole other level of a black box because we don't know quite as much about a mosquito as we do about humans. Even more so, we know even less about the ecosystems within which those mosquitoes live and thrive. And so there are just huge levels of, of uncertainty. What's, what is good is what's happening, though, is at least these technologies and these ideas are starting to fuel more study of these ecosystems and have a better understanding of how they might these genetically engineered mosquitoes might interact if released into the wild. But there's still just huge degrees of uncertainty. And so one solution that, that we talk a lot about is of really requiring a really broad spectrum of interdisciplinary experts to be really thinking about, about how these technologies should be used and developed um, that go well beyond just genomics and engineers, but really thinking about having ecologists and philosophers and different ethicists and all sorts of folks sort of involved in, in thinking about that in order to, again, minimize those, those blind spots. And then, of course, the other thing that comes up, which is really my one of my leading passions about thinking how to address this, is we're talking about engineering the shared environment. 
And because of that, there is a huge justice issue here where people have a right to being part of these decisions. And, and we're, we're really needing to think about new kinds of decision-making frameworks that ensure that those voices get to be part of, of how those choices are made. Mm. I am aware that you place a huge emphasis on the need for inclusivity within environmental gene editing. I mean, with much of this technology being developed by, I assume, those who are privileged and highly educated, how do you think Mm -hmm. we can bring about more inclusivity here? And how would having this impact our goals and outcomes? Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is what's going on with genetic engineering of of malarial bearing mosquitoes. Um, Those technologies are developed largely in the West, mainly in the UK right now. It's funded by an American philanthropist. And so we start to see sort of remnants of, you know, imperialism where we have these technologies being developed in the West and being brought over into countries like Burkina Faso and other areas within sub-Saharan Africa, where they don't necessarily have the same strength of scientific community there to make internal decisions. And so there's a real issue there, I think, about thinking about how do we empower local communities, both at the expert level, so scientists and regulatory decision makers and ethicists within these local areas where where, uh, genetically engineered species may be released, Um, as well as at the uh, non-expert level. So thinking about how do we bring in more kinds of community members into these sorts of, of choices. And so that's a, there's a real need for that right now. And of course I'm using and discussing gene editing technology as one example of where that's needed. But I also see this as an exciting opportunity to, to really use this example as a way to create, you know, platforms for decision-making that are inclusive and just um, that could be used for all sorts of, of environmental decisions and even maybe beyond. And on a related note, you co-authored a paper titled Editing Nature, Local Roots of Global Governance. And here's the outline of what you explore in that. As laboratories around the world develop and perfect gene editing techniques with unprecedented capacity to alter wild species and, by extension, the ecological and cultural systems of which they're a part, we outline our vision for locally-based, globally-informed governance. I mean, with the potential for gene editing to have such large impacts on on our entire world, what currently oversees the development of gene editing technologies and its applications? Are there any bodies of governance that oversee this or what does that look like? Yes, I mean, so this is where things are getting a bit dicey just because the technology has developed really quickly. And so we're kind of, we're seeing a leg of regulatory bodies and governance bodies sort of behind the technology, which which is normal normally whenever these emerging technologies, they, they just can't keep up. And so really sort of where regulation and governance of this technology now would mainly fall on a global level would be under the United Nations has a convention on biological diversity um, that has certain protocols that oversee genetic modified organisms. And so they're now in the process of augmenting those protocols to include sort of these ideas about genetically engineering wild species. Because as you can imagine, up until now, regulation of GMO has generally has only really been around sort of the ideas for agricultural crops, which are in contained environments, right? Like the whole idea of keeping them safe is to keep those crops contained. Um, and this is a whole different can of worms where this is really the idea is to intentionally release and spread these genetically engineered organisms through the wild. And so there's a real need to sort of update and modify regulation to to address that. That being said, we, my co-authors and I felt that really what was in place is is inadequate in that 
Firstly, these decisions are going to be very context dependent, depending on what organism is is going to be edited and what in what sort of environment it would be released for what for what reasons and in what communities would be impacted. And so because of that, as well as because of this real need for justice and local community involvement, it really has to have sort of this locally based platform to, to deliberate on whether and how these technologies should be, be developed and deployed. Mm. However, as you mentioned, these organisms are likely to spread in the wild and very unlikely to respect international boundaries. <laughs> and so there's a real need to think about how can we coordinate different nation states, maybe even different continents, to really think about sort of being a nuanced way of, of integrating the global and the local and thinking about how to make responsible decisions. Because obviously, Burkina Faso can't make a decision in isolation without, without thinking about its neighbors like Mali, where a mosquito would likely go into, right? And so, um, and it might even require the entire African Union being on board before a release, for, before a release should occur. And so there's a, there's a real need for, again, having sort of that local basis for deliberation to ensure justice, but also not be blind to the idea that these could have really large global implications. And, and really, we're just concerned that with the bureaucracy and sort of these large, huge international organizations in place, they might not have sort of the nimbleness to make the, the proper decisions that would be need to made with these with these technologies. Mm. And as you mentioned earlier, it feels like always technological advance will be one step ahead of regulations because it's able to come up with things that we didn't know could exist in the first place. So how do you think, even beyond gene editing, I mean, how do you think we can continue to advance our innovations and technologies in a responsible manner to not always be solving our issues after they've been applied everywhere and has become really widespread? Yeah. And so I think the other way to, to ask that question, too, is like, how do we do this without relying on regulation, right, to safeguard mm -hmm. it? Because I, I think it's just it's it can't, basically. And so I have a lot of optimism and, and thinking about we're already seeing that face of science is beginning to change. We have such a much more diverse sort of set of people who are scientists now. And I think that in itself helps to safeguard because you just come in with more lenses on the issue and people that might come from historically marginalized communities, for example, or people who might come, you know, even as a woman, we were very outnumbered for a very long time in science and, and it just come in with sort of new ways of being and thinking about things. And I think in that way, it already begins to make sort of a more holistic way of developing technologies. We still have a very far way to go, but it's, it's you know, there's sort of momentum that way. And so I really think even at the ground level, if we're thinking about how we train scientists, sort of what we value in science, so moving away from an idea of competition and first to publish and really moving into something that is sort of more altruistic and compassionate and collaborative, which is really in line with society, right? I mean, those are the values you think are important in society. And so thinking about how do we transform science to, to reflect society better, and then also thinking about ways that we can really incorporate, you know, the non-experts, non and I used to do quote-unquote experts, because I think we all are experts in our own unique ways, but thinking about how do we include sort of non-scientists or, or people from local communities into really shaping technology development. And so even just on a discipline level, you know, we're seeing a lot more collaboration between ethicists and scientists, um, philosophers and engineers, and, and things like that sort of to build bridges and, and hopefully also starting to see a real increase in, in public engagement around science and, and having sort of more kinds of people shaping how these technologies develop and really by extension sort of shaping the, the future of our world, right? Mm. 
I'm curious what your thoughts are on more prevention-based solutions to our ecological challenges, like doing things to support mm -hmm. the ecosystem's health, as opposed to things that target or things that help to address the symptoms. And I don't know if my my hesitation is, you know, what if people feel like we can mm -hmm. gene edit our way through climate change and just edit everything to be more resilient to climate change rather than targeting the root causes of this to begin with. And perhaps one of the reasons that we may need things like gene editing today is because we don't have a lot of time and we, we need to start having solutions that can give us results right away. And we don't have a lot of time to turn our entire society around. So we may need to turn to things like gene editing to, I guess, preserve what we have left of our biodiversity. Yeah, you, you're bringing up, it's a really great point. It's something I think a lot about too. And it's, it's something a lot of, I've heard, you know, several people bring up. And really, it's like trying not to come up with some sort of band-aid solution, right? And it, it gets into this it gets into this world of what's called sort of like the techno fix, which makes me want to puke, really. But, <laughs> I mean, it's real. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, oh, I've got this, I've got this hammer, where are all the nails, and I'll just start using it and just fix everything. And, you know, it's a very sort of hero engineer, quite masculine often, actually, uh, approach to mm -hmm. technology. And really, I, I think it's I think it's a bit more nuanced. It's definitely more nuanced than that, but it is nuanced. And I think we're capable of this. You know, like I think I I, I feel like as humans, we should be capable of understanding that we have to do all that we can to prevent continued climate change. Like this has, we can do this. However, there might be situations where the the oceans are so warm right now that there might be coral that is lost that we we even if we were to stop now we might not be able to save it you know and so i have a lot of hope in thinking that we can be sort of two pronged in this and really think about being really really dedicated to to prevention but understanding that there might be situations that if we don't do this we would have to then be okay with losing coral you know and i don't know if i am mm. And I, and I don't want to be sort of this black or white, you know, scenario, but, but that could be the, the outcome. And so it might, it might require both. And again, hoping that we can start to have decision makers that, that can be in that space that allows for both and not this, this sort of either or. Mm. I think I think about carbon sequestration technologies yeah. in a very similar manner because I feel like first and foremost, we need to support our ecosystems to thrive again, you know, really improve, regenerate healthy soils that can sequester a lot of carbon, certainly reforest a lot of mm -hmm. lands that have been deforested and degraded. But then maybe there comes a point where we've already taken so much fossil fuel that's meant to be in the ground. We've already taken so much of that and kind of put, put it out in to our atmosphere and with all the emissions that come with that. So maybe we'll, we will need some artificial carbon sequestration technology mm -hmm. to be able to counter the amount of impact that we've already had. I think the questions are really similar when it comes to things like geoengineering and carbon sequestration, you know, are really similar to some of these things we're talking about here too. I think what's interesting to point out there though, is as many people kind of think about like you said, reforestation as, as a strategy for carbon sequestration, right? That many people are probably much more comfortable with than the idea of doing sort of technologic, more technologically advanced ways of, of sequestering carbon. But decisions are so complex, there might be issues where reforestation wouldn't be fast enough, for example, or there might be, again, unintended consequences we wouldn't be willing to make with doing more sort of like high-tech sequestration 
options. And so I think, again, it's, it's about really needing to be able to stay in it and kind of weigh things out and, and be okay with that. And, um, and again, understanding though, that the decision to not use a technology can be just as big as a decision as to use it irresponsibly, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like the clock is ticking and our time is kind of running (laughs) out. So we do have to be open to exploring all the options that we have and be okay with staying in that gray area, as you mentioned, so we can dive deeper to see what is it that we really need to be able to conserve the rest of our biodiversity left and also save our humanity from the conflicts and the stresses that will come from climate change and biodiversity loss. Yeah. And just one thing to add to that is I I think something we have to be really careful about is not slipping into sort of these simplistic ideas of, of, you know, technology being inherently bad, for example. I I really think technology is neither good or bad. It's, It's how it's used. And if we can really develop beautiful ways to think about how these decisions should proceed, ways that are di- inclusive and include these diverse perspectives and including the perspective of nature and thinking about how to, to really live in balance with nature, I, I think we really need to think about technology as, a, as one of many tools to promote and protect a, a healthy planet. Well, to close, I'd love for you to share your vision of what a world of ecological balance, diversity, and wellness for all would look like, and what do you think we need most to be able to get there? To really think about creating a healthy, balanced planet, we really need to start making decisions that uphold the flourishing of both humans and non-humans, and really cease from separating our species from the rest of of the living biosphere. If we don't, I'm worried that we won't be able to make the choices that that we need to, and and to really understand that our health is so intimately related uh, with the health of our planet and our home, and and thinking about ways that we can really develop sort of new ways to allow new kinds of interactions and relationship with nature that's that's built on respect and and love and and really kinship. And I think if we can come from a place from that place, and that's sort of like that's really our ethos that guides our choices. I think. Um, I have a lot of optimism that we can really create a, a really beautiful future. As an individual, there's this idea that, you know, each of us are, are given certain kinds of gifts. We have a responsibility to use those gifts to, to really create a society and a future that, that is in balance and, and, and loving. And um, that gift might simply be to really stay involved in your community and, and to stay educated on, on what's going on and stay politically active. For example, the gift could be as a scientist to, to be a voice, to help bring, bring those together. It might be just uh, the gift of kindness and to, you know, reach around along the aisle or smile at your neighbor um, and, and compassion and thinking about how we can be compassionate, not only to other humans, but also to the many non-humans that we share our, our planet with. And so I think on an individual level, we have this responsibility to sort of think about what our gifts are and think about how we can use them to create a more loving and balanced uh, a planet. And is there anything you feel like we can do to support technological advancement that is actually good for humanity as opposed to ones that maybe dehumanize us? Yeah, so I think we're seeing um, a really exciting sort of wave of new initiatives coming up, including editing nature. There's also a lot of initiatives around artificial intelligence. AI now is one that's based in, in NYU. And there's really this movement to think about how we can use sort of new tools of around creating 
bridges between society and technology to really ensure that technology reflects sort of the needs and values of society and in a way that is uplifting and, and equitable for all. And so I encourage sort of folks to, to firstly go to our website, www.editingnature.org, check out other sort of initiatives around the artificial intelligence space, even some with, within geoengineering to really sort of learn about ways that, that science is trying to, to evolve to, to really reflect the values and virtues that, that it should to be part of, you know, a, a healthy society. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to take a moment to sincerely thank our listener patrons for helping to make Green Dreamer possible and invite you to join me on Patreon for extended content as well, starting at just $1 per month. With Green Dreamer being an independent media platform, every little contribution helps a lot, and I do really appreciate it. For more information, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. As I'm starting to publish more videos and field interviews on YouTube, I'd love to invite invite you to join me there as well by going to greendreamer.com slash YouTube. And hey, just wanted to also say thank you so much for taking the time to tune in, for being here, and for your continued dedication to co-creating a better world for us all. For now, on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting publication or social media account you follow or a really profound book that you've read? Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin uh, Wall Kimmer is the most one of the most profound books I've read. I also encourage people to check out the Center for Humans in Nature. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I, I mean, I'm naturally pretty positive. <laughs> I think I, I think I just I just see how different our world is now than it was even 30 years ago. We have still a ways to go, but there's so many more different kinds of people in decision making power, and that keeps me really motivated. I also see the rise of women, uh, women of color really coming into into places of, of, again, a feminine power that also keeps me really hopeful. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Well, I just stopped eating gluten. <laughs> I think that's more for my stomach. It just, it feels a lot better. And um, I do, I do a lot of yoga. <laughs> What's one thing you're working on to elevate your positive impact for a healthier planet? I'm really, really trying to not use, to reduce waste. And so one is to just reduce any sort of like single use plastics and also being pretty vocal about that when I'm around town in a kind and loving way, <laughs> but to try and kind of raise awareness of not needing so much, so much trash. Uh, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The many, many different kinds of folk that are coming into places to make choices. And I just think I see particularly young people and their beautiful diversity and their beautiful sort of just knowingness of how important the environment is. And that gives me a lot of hope. Mm. Well, certainly, it definitely sounds like we have a lot more to learn about <laughs> everything that you just talked about. So we would, of course, love to stay posted on what you're up to and continue to follow your journey. So where can we stay posted and follow your work online? Yeah, so please visit www.editingnature.org. And um, yeah, for now, that would be the best spot. Cool. <laughs> and are you on social media or? Yeah, I have um, at Natalie Kofler on Twitter. Cool. Well, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Don't don't get downtrodden. <laughs> I think I know we see a lot of destruction and we see a lot of hate 
and trampling over of both humans and non-humans. But I, I really feel like this is the last stand of an old age that's on its way out. And I think we're going to see movement into a really different kind of future. And I'm, I think we should be excited to be part of, of creating that. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.